You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Last month, Australia's Foreign and Defence Ministers hosted the US Secretaries of State and Defence in Brisbane for the annual Australia-United States Ministerial Consultations, or as they're more widely known, OSMIN. John Coyne and Ewan Graham joined the Aspie podcast for the second part of our OSMIN special, to discuss the meeting's outcomes with a focus on force posture cooperation, strategic geography, and the importance of Northern Australia. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money. Ewan and I are here today to talk about Osmin and all of the announcements with a particular focus today on things like force posture initiatives. A lot is said in here around in the Osmin um, in July. The official communique said a lot about specific locations, North Queensland. It talked about Northern Australia. It talked about specific bases. So today I'm hoping that you and I will sit there and explore some of what this might mean. Now, you're leading off. I'm going to go completely the opposite way because we started this. Everybody's sitting here looking at Taiwan, okay? Everyone is talking about Taiwan. To an extent, those people who are in the know are talking about South China Sea, East China Sea. You know, in terms of this sort of messaging of, of Osmin, what does it really mean? I think you're right, John, that people watch out for Taiwan as a kind of indicator of Australia's strategic interest and willingness, if you like, within the alliance to play at that level, which is the US probably still the primary security concern in the region. But I think you're our walking and talking expert on all things North Australia. And I think the takeaway for me from Osmin is that the geography, the strategic geography of this region immediately around Australia, including South Pacific and maritime Southeast Asia is becoming more strategic and more evident, and it counts more in U.S. Uh, military strategy, and that joins together with the Taiwan piece rather than something separate. And look, we can no doubt. I mean, you and I have been around in this game for a while. You know, if we look back, you know, the term Indo-Pacific, and this comes to the heart of why Australia's strategic geography is so important. Um, it was only sort of the last eight. 10 years where people started to really talk about the Indo-Pacific. Now, um, Rory Metcalf's book presents this particularly well. Inside the front cover of his book has a wonderful picture of of the Indo-Pacific. And if you turn it sort of slightly, what you start noticing is on the bottom south, in the right in the middle is Darwin and Northern Australia. Now, coincidentally, when you head off to to Hawaii and you go and visit Indo-Pacific Command and start looking at planning maps. So it's an eerily similar map there. I guess for me, that's when I look at it, at this and I go, okay, what we're seeing here, and, and I want to touch on it and ask you because you're the, probably more expert in deterrence than I am. You know, for me, I think when you look at that map, the geography itself just makes sense. That's why the Americans want to be here. When it comes to the geopolitics and, you know, we can say it, the Americans don't have a lot of choices across the region in terms of locations where they can be forward deployed. Against that in terms of readiness from a military perspective and preparedness from a national perspective, you know, all roads lead to northern Australia. But those roads split off in two different directions. Now, you and I were talking about this earlier. So in terms of deterrence and in terms of force posture, one goes to the Pacific and one goes north. John, I'd, I'd agree with you that it's quite flattering to Australia's strategic identity, if you like, the national ego, that if you unfurl the map of the Indo-Pacific, 
we sit pretty much at the center of it. But I think if you look at the the actual force posture that the United States has, it's still remarkably top-heavy in Northeast Asia, particularly Japan. And if you look at the U.S. footprint there, and to a lesser extent in South Korea, but those still are where the bulk of U.S. forward-deployed forces are. But that creates a problem for the U.S. in a security environment where the most likely adversary, China, is building out its long-range and uh, short-range missile capabilities, which are able to threaten those bases in the first island chain. That's where Australia comes into play as a conveniently located, friendly political ally that's continental in size and is in about the right place, which is not too close to those missiles, but it's in the Western Pacific. So if it comes to a a debate around how does the US shorten its lines of communication and supply into the first island chain, then Australia becomes important in a way that it was back in the Second World War. So the geography is the constant. And I think that the strategic geography of Australia has always been latent, but now it's being rediscovered by the United States in this contemporary context. And look, I mean, that's, that's clearly accelerating. This lines of communication discussion has been front and centre of, of USDOD thinking. Certainly, I was in Hawaii earlier this year for Land Pacific. General Flynn, commander of uh, US Army Pacific, you know, very clear messages about shortening the lines of communication. You know, interestingly, some references to the Korean War and how the UN and the US and their shortened lines of communication allowed them to move back up the Korean Peninsula. But this isn't happening in a vacuum. Now, and I want to go to the sorts of people listening who are questioning and going, okay, look, you know, what are these the alternative ways of looking at this? You know, China has no bases. But when we do look at it though, China is building multi-user facilities. So the sorts of things that can use in a number of different locations though, isn't it? Yes, I think compared to the fully mature network of U.S. bases and and places, because that's the preferred terminology now rather than bases, they like to have rotational deployments, including to Australia. But the network is is far bigger in the U.S. case than in in China's. China only has one fully-fledged military base, which is um, all the way in Djibouti in the, the Horn of Africa, much less so closer to home. But that's changing. We see, obviously, in the South China Sea, the development of those artificial islands, but also the interest in Cambodia, where there is now a a naval base with a new pier that's been constructed. And in this part of the world, the interest in in the South Pacific has been uppermost in minds in in the Canberra uh, security community. The close relationship of the Solomon Islands in particular, I think, a cause of concern. And that's really about building the relationships, as you say, not not with a, a mirror imaging approach towards the development of military bases along US Cold War lines, but rather developing the relationships that will allow at least the logistics to sustain a Chinese naval presence of, of some kind. And we're beginning to see China operating more regularly in the Coral Sea, uh, in the South Pacific, indeed in Australia's own exclusive economic zone. 
When we start looking at the details of Osmin and we start looking and sitting there going, okay, you touched on a little bit there, bases, places, there's, there's some changes in terminology and certainly there's a nuance to this discussion. So we definitely know the Marine Rotational Force Darwin comes into town for into uh, Australia six months of the year and trains here, but there are some, some amazingly new activities, so surveillance being one of them. I mean, you know, have you got a feel for what that might look like? Well, as you know better than I, John, the Force Posture Initiative has been up and running for, for quite a few years already. The Air Force elements and the Marine Corps elements are the most established. It's always struck me as a little bit odd that there wasn't a, a, a naval strand to the, the Force Posture Initiative. That's changed quite dramatically now uh, in the sense that we're seeing a commitment in the Osmin communique to step up the level of submarine visits with a view to establishing the rotational force in Perth or Western Australia from 2027 onwards. And in fact, there is a, an SSN, a nuclear-powered submarine, already visiting in Western Australia as, as we speak. But there is also a new element that's been announced in Osmin that the US Navy is going to do rotational deployments of reconnaissance and surveillance aircraft. And I'd like to get your view on what you think that that's likely to, to look like, because... Now there is a, a distinct naval strand that includes both surface, subsurface, uh, and aerial. Look, I, I suspect that the Triton will be um, will will feature fairly significantly here, and certainly greater cooperation in terms of P eight patrols. Now the frequency of those and what we actually what comes in and out of country will will be the interesting component because I, I think it's very easy on paper and when I we review over Osmin it sort of says you know broad terminology and I said before you know we we talked about okay rotational forces versus bases places those sorts of things and I, I think my answer to this really comes down to I think there's a couple of strands of thinking. The first one is that there's a lot of talk these days in Australia around resilience. So that's about individual locations, capacity to deal with emergency and crisis. The second one is, is and this is, I see threads across the Osmin announcement. The second one is, is about readiness, which is really that very specific defence issue. So in, in Australia's case, well, you know, this whole concept of having to operate with what you've got now. Um, for the US, regular rotations do provide that readiness component. For me, the really interesting one and what this really is about when we read through, I think, Osmin is about preparedness. Now, we saw this investment. USDOD has invested via um, Crowley, a, a private sector firm, an American company, building new fuel storage in Darwin. Okay, so it's about being prepared for a range of contingencies. I think when we're looking now at the announcements around raft-based Sherga, around Tyndall, of course, which a lot of work has gone into, when we're looking into um, raft-based Curtin, um, those bare bases in the north, when we're starting to talk about joint logistics facilities, I think all of these things are really about preparedness. I suspect, for my money, that there's a lot of thought building on some of the findings of Rand's report around the deterrence value of heavy land forces, the issue of preparedness itself has a deterrence value. It shows a commitment to the alliance, a commitment to force posture that rotational forces don't. The other part is, is with that, the vagaries of the statement. So when it comes to surveillance, like I said, P8s, Tritons, for those who are observing from Beijing, that'll leave some very big open questions and an intelligence requirement that will be require constant collecting against in order to answer. 
We're starting to see some other things coming in as well. The U.S. Army is mentioned in the communique both in a couple of senses. One, uh, that exactly that area of prepositioning of equipment that you've talked about with an aim eventually to, to set up a logistics support area in, in Queensland, but in the interim to, I understand, stall those in, in Victoria. But we've also seen a, an interesting reference to the rotation of U.S. Army watercraft in Australia. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what you think might be the concept behind that. It seems to dovetail in some sense with the ADF's increasing interest in amphibious force development. Is this something that they might work on together? How would it fit with the U.S. Marines, which are also the traditional amphibious force in the U.S. system? But something else I'd like to to throw at you, John, in the language about rotational presence, is there a sort of a dancing around the aversion to the B word here that Australia traditionally has not had to host a large U.S. military footprint? The forces which it has had are mostly connected with intelligence and are fairly small scale. Even the Marines up in Darwin, we're talking only about at peak two and a half thousand. It's nothing compared with the uh, the forces in, in Okinawa. And the language of the communique says that uh, they're on a rotational basis, mutually determined and at the invitation of Australia with full respect and observance of both Australian and US sovereignty. That seems a very calculated phrase. Could you unpack that for, for our audience? What What is the concern around uh, sovereignty? And if you're going to compare the US alliance with Australia to Japan and Korea, where the B word is is not a dirty word. There are bases and a much bigger footprint. What's with Australia's attitude? Look, I think some of it's historical, but to go back to the other way, I think the B word itself has lots of controversy around it. So, you know, if you're in Okinawa, you know, there's some, some long-term challenges for the Japanese who obviously want US force presence there, but certainly um, it hasn't come without its own challenges and certainly it doesn't come in a neutral way in terms of international relations. Australia has long, and I think it finds its origins here in the nuclear age, it's long tried to avoid making specific bases in Australia or joint facilities other than that found at Pine Gap and previously in Western Australia. So I think we've we've had an aversion to that. Going forward, I think it's going to get harder and harder to that. So for my sort of two cents for it, you know, I I would love to see Osmin and the concepts in, in this Osmin, but Osmin 2024 or Osmin 2025 go that next step and similar, so, you know, there's brigade levels of equipment for the Marines in Norway. There's full brigades, armoured sets that are sitting there ready to go in terms of preparedness for the US Army in Europe and also in the Middle East. I, I think that's that next step, but I don't think the Australian public in general wants to, to have that, that B word, the base word there. That said, you know, I, I think the amphibious idea is a, is a fantastic one. There are a lot of opportunities. You know, at the end of the day, and as a ex-soldier, this always pains me to say it, but land warfare experts hate to say this about the Indo-Pacific region, but it is a maritime region. So littoral operations are going to be key to any future conflict in the region. Amphibious capability is going to be really important to that. We've most definitely seen changes in 
the force structure of the US Marine Corps and role. So moving to a far lighter role that's focused on supporting the US Navy in the region. So that also puts an emphasis on the US Army being able to operate across the region. Can I cut um, in on that? On that, And it goes back to your earlier comment, John, about the, the roads forking in the north of Australia, both to uh, to Darwin on the one hand and then to Queensland on, on the other. Australia is a, a big country, to state the obvious, and it faces onto two very different sub-regions, maritime Southeast Asia on one hand and the, the Southwest Pacific on the other. Sort of joining the diplomatic dots ahead of Osmin, we saw some high-profile uh, stopovers in, in, in Tonga and in PNG. Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defence, was the first Secretary of Defence to make that visit to, to Port Moresby. Uh, what do you make of the, the respective balance in the force posture announcements between the northeast of Australia versus the, the north and northwest? And, and what does that say about the combined interest of the United States and Australia in regional contingencies? Um, look, first off, I think if we look at the, the interests, it has a strange similarity to the 1940s. So, you know, often when we talk about posture in Northern Australia, you know, if you look during World War II, that Cairns, Towns or Charters Towers area of Northern Australia was a hub of US Army activity for supporting Pacific operations. And there's some good sense also in, in the 21st century. So Australia has has a range of soft power connections between North Queensland and into the Pacific. So there's diplomatic ones, long-term social and cultural. You know, many of the elite across the region, their children are schooled in Cairns and Townsville, et cetera. Um, so for me, there's a great deal of similarity and history in this. There's some really great reasons for doing it. And to put it frank, Talisman Sabre occurs in um, North Queensland for a very good reason because it provides an outstanding location for essentially laying out forces and undertaking formation level and above exercises and training. So it provides an outstanding location for that. I think North, the rest of Northern Australia and Northwestern Australia provides a very different – it is a true maritime operating environment, very much focused on Air Force, surveillance, ISR, maritime. And so, you know, you have these natural synergies. The Marines located and training there um, is not by any chance. And, you know, this sort of goes back to your other question, you know, that's why it makes a fantastic location for joint training. The DSR's decision, which was really an extension of decisions that had already been made by by the Australian Defence Force and the Defence Organisation, that increasing focus on littoral operations, that ability to project forward and operate in um, the region's littoral environment. I think that, to me, spells a really great synergy between what the US is thinking and what the Australian government are thinking. just want to go back a bit, though. I mean, you know, this is you, you touch on this sovereignty issue, and it's one that comes up a lot of times when people are talking about Osmin and when they're talking about the US-Australia relationship. And it's also the partial answer to to that question that you had around base or the B word, and that is that I think that Australia still wants to position itself in a time and place where it maintains its sovereignty. There's no automatic decision about its involvement in any future conflict or any future lead up to a conflict. And it wants to, I guess, maintain that level of options going forward. And I think that's the hard thing. Once you get, start getting further down a permanent present, a permanent basing, that's where it gets difficult. Very good. 
One thing I, I wanted to um, pick up before we leave the Force Posture Initiative, I, I just want to note also that space cooperation was noted in the communique as a new area for US and Australia to to cooperate in. So it's not just the traditional domains, it's also it flags the importance of, of space. But there was also uh, references to, to other partners as well in a couple of senses. That US Navy rotation also flagged an interest in in bringing in like-minded partners in future. To my mind, the, the obvious candidates there would be Japan, India, New Zealand, all of which operate similar, or in some cases, the identical maritime patrol aircraft. They would be the, the obvious ones. And this is also about the sense of enmeshing the alliance in, in a broader web of, of regional partnerships. And Japan is the, is the clear standout there. There's another reference to increasing Japanese participation in exercises and training-related activities. Talisman Sabre this year had a, a very prominent uh, Japanese role, including high miles firing for the first time off Japanese soil, or certainly for the first time of in, uh, in Australia. And there's also language in there about the, the trilateral as well. I thought it was interesting that the trilateral, while it does get a fair bit of attention, is really functional specific. So it talks about integrated air and missile defense as a, an area of cooperation with Japan. And I think that's a sort of obvious growth area of the military trilateral relationship. But it doesn't come to geographical brass tacks. It avoids being regional specific. I think that is also speaks to the sensitivity about not wanting to lock Australia into commitments in advance. There is a reference, though, to the East China Sea up front, not in the defence sections of the communique, but it says that Australia and the US, I'm loosely paraphrasing here, but would take use very seriously, the situation in the East China Sea. Uh, so that, that I thought, would, would cause Japanese ears to, to prick up, probably in a positive sense. I don't know what your thoughts are on any of that. Look, you know what, I'm going to go to the space one first, because my colleague Malcolm Davies would never forgive me if I didn't pick on that, which is, you know what, we're very fortunate here in Australia and certainly in Northern Australia, which is we have some of the world's best locations for space launch for satellites in the world and they're ready to go. You know, we've got some significant investment going into our space industry here and the idea of joint space activity in Northern Australia, I think, is a really fantastic opportunity for Australian industries, a fantastic place to cooperate, and a new and emerging area of cooperation that is certainly going to be increasingly contested. The Japan question is, a, is an interesting one. My lost on most people, you know, Australia already has, and Northern Australia specifically, already has some deep connections in terms of strategic issues. So take Impex, a Japanese company, 10% of the liquid natural gas that is used in Japan comes from Northern Australia. You know, one of the first visits by then Prime Minister Abe was to Darwin at the opening of Impex to really send a very powerful message about the connections between Australia and Japan. So I think these things are, are coming. Certainly, you know, lots of discussions about joint training and, uh, and increasing Japanese presence in Northern Australia doing joint training in a rotational sense. 
And that message has come up diplomatically. It's come up quite regularly. As you know, and I'm not a, a Japan expert, but as you know, there are some unique challenges in relation to the legislation in Japan and, and what they can and can't do and where they can do that. But certainly, you know, the other parties is that Australia has some of the best and most instrumented ranges in the world where you can use all of your fifth generation warfare fighting capability, where its performance can be measured and you can do so far from the prying eyes of other countries. So that offers itself a great deal of utility uh, for the Japanese and, and they certainly have expressed that interest. You know, Japan, like the UK though, has its own challenges in meeting, you know, just numbers and its commitments and and its forces. So, you know, the idea that Japan could do, for instance, a, a you know, a two and a half thousand strong rotation like Murph D does or like the US does with the Marines, I, I think that would be really, really challenging. So there's a lot in the communique about what the US is going to do more in Australia and some of its partners probably as well. <clears throat> Being a bit cynical about it, do you think that there's a a sense that Australia's slightly sitting on its laurels here and trading on its strategic geography. And there aren't many commitments in terms of what the ADF is going to do in terms of regional deployments. Do you think that there's a, a reading, close reading behind between the lines that there's a certain caginess there? Um, look, I, I think there is. You know, certainly though, there's some mixed messages. So, you know, if we look to the DSR, and in fact, Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Miles made this statement that, you know, how important Darwin is and its strategic importance. You know, we still have the issues here about the leasing of ports. You know, we have challenges in terms of we made a commitment here in Australia in the 2012 Defence Force Posture Review, the 2013 Defence White Paper about upgrading facilities in the north and target hardening. DSR 2023 says those weren't delivered and they're needed and there's a there's an implementation issue here. We're talking about forced posture and forward positioning of equipment and logistics, yet we're sending that logistics to Aubrey, Wodonga and Victoria. There's in the US material. So, look, I do think there's some, some things here. You know, I've long said on the record – you know, to me, uh, the investment made by the US in the Crowley fuel storage could be interpreted by some as a as a vote of no confidence in our us getting our strategic infrastructure right. And you know, you know, I, I often say tongue in cheek that perhaps the DSR will be remembered as the review that launched twenty reviews. And so there's there's a lot of open questions here around. Well, you know, what is the commitment? You know, and traditionally. The defence organisation has existed in a, a very long piece for over three decades. In that time, it's prioritised as it should capability. First places where budgets tend to get cut is in those back areas of basing and target hardening, etc. So, you know, there's there's a change of mindset that's really required here, and we're not necessarily seeing it yet in terms of delivery against the DSR, and that's probably how the US are looking at that. And how does it work when it comes to funding the upgrade of military infrastructure in the north? Is it ad hoc or is there a, a set formula for, for how you divvy it up between the US and Australia? Um, look, it's been a long negotiation process. So if we look towards RAF-based Tyndall, which arguably uh, is our preeminent air base in Australia, probably the most strategically important one, it's the location of our 
some of our most important exercises with the US, uh, such as pitch black. And, you know, those negotiations were long, hard, fought out, drawn out over who was going to pay for what. Uh, I guess we're in a different strategic environment here now. And, and, and I think the Americans are certainly looking at that. And I think Australia here and within Russell offices or the Australian Defence Organisation, that, that's one of the hard ones where you go, okay, you know, less than 10 years warning time. What does that mean? Well, I, I always put it as an example like this, which is that, um, so if you want to dredge a port, you really have, it takes you about two years to put yourself on a, on a list in order to get a dredger to come to Australia to dredge a port. Um, that's if you make the decision today. So when we're talking about infrastructure, things like that, that these things take time. And so those negotiations draw out that time even further. Now, that was my sort of point on Crowley and the fuel storage in, in Darwin, where the US military, I mean, they had a burning platform. So, you know, Red Hill in Hawaii was leaking fuel and they needed to disperse fuel across the region. So, you know, they had a very tight time frame to do that. So look, there's going to be have to be some fairly hard negotiations on this in terms of who pays for what. And, and unfortunately, I, you know, I don't see the USDOD paying for all of this. Just to pick up on one specific site, RAF Base Sugar, I admit I had to look it up when it was mentioned in the communique because it's not a name that trips off the tongue like Tyndall. But it's an interesting location. It sits up right on the, uh, the shoulder of Cape York, the northernmost point in continental Australia. And if you draw a straight line up, you get obviously to Papua New Guinea first, but then uh, to Guam after that. And I just wrote a piece recently for the strategist sort of thinking through the logic of this, that uh, these bare bases, which have seen very remote in Australian terms for many years, after being set up in the in the eighties, I, I guess, but now they're coming into their own, and and sugar in particular, I think, does have that underlying strategic value that uh, in the so-called second island chain, it really sits at the base of that. If you're going to connect Guam through Papua New Guinea into Australia, then sugar is a very useful lily pad from which to to hop. Look, Shurga, I had the opportunity to go to RAF Base Shurga earlier this year. I'd been there years before, near the township of Weeper and the Port of Gove. So, you know, it's got a, it, it has a deep water port right next to it. Certainly the Marines, the US Marine Rotational Force Darwin has been doing exercises with the, the bare bases. You know, sometimes when you look back, the decision in the 80s to set these, these bare bases up made sense then and uh, is fortuitous now. Three bear bases across northern Australia, plus RAF base Tyndall, all in very good strategic locations, all in the vicinity of port facilities. They were always designed as as turnkey facilities. Now that's all the good news. Next comes the bad news. When they were designed, they were designed when Australia's thinking around Defence of Australia was very much about a different type of Defence of Australia. It was really about almost you described as counterinsurgency operations. So these facilities aren't target-hardened, you know, they, uh, munitions are, storage isn't target-hardened, you know, aprons aren't necessarily there, and they've got some big challenges with them, you know, incredibly isolated, the bare bases themselves. So uh, in all, you know, if you're talking lines of communication, you know, you've got to have a fair bit of self-sufficiency there. You know, just to illustrate that point, you know, in, in January last year, 
the roads between Adelaide and rail between Adelaide and Darwin were cut in like 16 different locations and it took two weeks to repair. Food sort of started running short in Darwin as a result of that. So, you know, you've, you've, you've got some fairly significant logistical challenges with those locations, but, you know, they're still, back to that original story, they are really, really important in terms of range, connection, strategic geography, et cetera. But now comes the hard bit, which is any major project on a defence facility is a challenging project. When you do those sorts of projects and you, you've got a shortened time frame and you're doing them in some of the most remote parts of Australia, it brings some logistical and um, resource challenges to that. Well, I think that completes our comprehensive tour of the Osman Communique and its force structure elements. I'm grateful for my colleague, John Coyne, who's the the Institute expert on Northern Australia for contributing his expertise. And we look forward to uh, maintaining our analysis at the next Osmond, John, and we'll uh, keep a close eye on, on all matters Northern Australia related. Thank you. Thanks, Ewan. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.